Welcome and thanks for joining us on The Pivot, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these short podcasts, we'll be speaking with leaders in the work to end violence against children and their families. In particular, we explore the myriad ways that systems can be transformed in order to provide community support to adult and child survivors in a meaningful way. We have prioritized guidance and practices that advance equity and remove barriers for the best possible outcomes for the most marginalized and oftentimes excluded. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the punitive approaches that often form part of institutions and a new opportunity to connect families to holistic and culturally relevant community supports. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and practices to improve child and family safety. We hope that you will use these short yet meaningful dialogues to engage in discussions within your own organizations. I'm your host, Wendy Mota. Let's dive in. Good afternoon or good morning to our audience, depending on where they are listening to us from. My name is Wendy Monta. My pronouns are ella, she, her, hers, and I'm a program manager at Futures Without Violence and your host for this podcast. We are so excited for the guest that we have today, my colleague and my friend, Juan Carlos Ariang. And Juan Carlos, can you uh, please kindly introduce yourself? Of course, Wendy, and thank you so, so much for having me uh, on this podcast. I'm a, I'm a big fan and I'm so excited to be here. And I always love uh, to converse with you about these topics. So Juan Carlos Arian is my name. I use pronouns he and el. And as you mentioned, I also work at Future Without Violence. I'm a program director in the children's team that also Wendy is part of. Thank you, Juan Carlos. So today the topic is uh, working with people who use violence and fatherhood, perhaps. Um, And, you know, we, like you mentioned, have been talking about this uh, topic. I've been talking to you for a long time and you have been working in the field for a much longer time. And I, I think I remember probably the first interaction I had with you. I was at the coalition level. I don't know if you remember. Uh, we were. That's probably around the time that you and our colleague Lana Davis were um, recording something my father would do. Yes. A long, long yes. time ago. And, you know, back then there weren't as many resources. So we were super excited that that was going to come out and also that it was going to be available in both English and Spanish at some point. So I remember having email conversations with you and then um, having the pleasure of working with you. Um, I think I, I'm bringing this up not only because it kind of um, gives context to our uh, relationship, but also I think at that time, the field was starting to shift a little bit. You know, I think for many, many years, maybe even decades, the work that involved domestic violence, violence against women, was very separate from the work with people who use violence, right? And I think, I don't know if you would agree, there's been a shift, right? There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of energy around folks wanting to learn more how to work 
with folks that use violence. And in your experience, have you seen, like, is that tangible for you, the evolution of the work? Have you have you seen it shift? That's, that's a great question, Wendy. And I, I do remember when uh, we first met, and this was probably close to 20 years ago mm-hmm. when we were uh, working on, on those materials. And prior to that, I had been in the field for about 12 years, so I'm dating myself. I've been <laughs> uh, decades, in fact. And, and the advantage of uh, working in one field for so long is that you can see the evolution. Sometimes it's not positive, but in this case, mm-hmm. I agree with you that there has been positive movement and more and more people are realizing that in order to really end gender-based violence and violence against children, we need to be working with the folks that are generating this violence. And that if we work from only a punitive Mm -hmm. way, which is the way that it used to be, or a a shameful Mm -hmm. based, a shame-based way, that we will not be very successful. So I'm I'm happy that the movement is, humanizing more people who use violence and at the same time recognizing that what they are doing is not okay. That's where mm-hmm. people sometimes get a little tripped is that if we humanize them, we are justifying what they are mm-hmm. doing and that's not the case at all. Yeah. And e- even the language, Wendy, right? We now are saying people who cause harm, that's people right. who use violence, used to be batters, offenders, mm-hmm. perpetrators, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And people still use that language. But uh, I think using People first language uh, helps humanize folks too. Yeah, that's a great point, Juan Carlos, and, and very true. Even in the way we refer to it, there's been some some shifts and some changes. Can I ask you what is what what's exciting to you right now about this work? What what is different? What um, what feels good for you in this work? Yeah, I love to answer that question because I'm super excited. The, the truth is I'm an optimist and I'm always excited about this work. Uh, but right now, I think what is very exciting for me is that we're starting to look uh, at alternatives to uh, coercive systems to work with people who use violence. In the U.S., by and large, the referrals to programs that some people call battering intervention or batterers. I prefer mm-hmm. battering intervention programs or some people call it abuse partner intervention programs or other names. Basically, uh, psychoeducational groups mm-hmm. for people who, who use violence. Uh, they have received historically the referrals almost close to 95% from uh, the criminal legal system and mm-hmm. some from child welfare system too. And as we know, those systems are uh, disproportionately affect people uh, of color uh, and uh, that and and low income people too mm-hmm. uh, and I think that has been extremely problematic because first of all uh, a lot of people who are not in those categories end up not going to these programs yes, and I not am. really being accountable maybe going to a therapist that might or might know about domestic violence but also because the programs, as I said before, have traditionally been, traditionally been punitive. It's kind of a double whammy for, mm-hmm. for men of color in these programs. So we are starting, just starting right now, to see that there are other ways to engage people who use violence. It's really like a change of paradigm mm-hmm. that just started happening, in my opinion, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. So about mm-hmm. three years ago, mm-hmm. when 
when the pandemic started, programs, some programs have to shift uh, from in-person groups to Zoom groups. Virtual, like if yeah. We all did that. Uh, and they had to figure out how to do that. And some of the programs that I admire, like House of Ruth in, Mer in Baltimore or uh, Men Stopping Violence in Atlanta, or Caminar Latino, they, they were very thoughtful about how to do that. And, and they ended up for quite a while offering Zoom groups uh, for free, actually. They weren't wow. charging folks. And also they weren't penalizing them if they didn't come to groups. So then, in fact, they became voluntary groups because people were I was just going to say that. Penalized. Are they voluntary? Yeah, okay. Right? Wow. And, and what happened is that folks did show up to the groups. Wow. In fact, not, not only showed up, but they were so grateful that this resort was available when, when at a time where there was a lot of stress wow. in, at the home, right? So that, in fact, for me, broke that paradigm wow. uh, that people will not come without a mandate. And I, I knew this from my work, yeah, my personal work. work, and also colleagues in other countries, for instance, friends in Mexico City, who had been running a program for decades where the first uh, 10, 15 years, thousands of men finished a 52-week program without any mandate. Voluntarily? Yes. Wow. Yes. Wow. I sometimes hesitate to use that word because nobody <laughs> wakes up in the morning like, hey, I'm going to battery intervention. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's other places in the UK, other places that haven't had those mandates. Mm -hmm. So in some way, I think that takes us to a place of asking ourselves, well, if you believe that this is not possible in the U.S., mm -hmm. is that a problem with folks who use violence or folks who work the with system. them? The system, yeah, right? that's or right. Or with the systems and so on. So wow. I'm, 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 I cannot stop talking about the importance of start working on engaging folks from different perspectives. And as you know, and maybe some people in the audience know, a lot of my work is on the overlap of fatherhood and domestic violence, because I believe that fatherhood for those who are fathers, mm -hmm. not for everybody, can be a, a powerful motivator to mm -hmm. engage them into this process. Mm -hmm. So so that's what is exciting me right now. Yeah, right. I love that. And you're right. Maybe it's not voluntarily the term, but it's non-mandated, like you're saying. So thank you for, for that reframe. That's super exciting. And, and I wouldn't say surprising, but it gives us different perspective, right? The work is happening around the world, not necessarily the way it's happening here and it's working. So yeah, I agree with you. That's that's super exciting. And Juan Carlos, you know, you're talking, you know, that's the exciting piece to it. And you're talking and giving us example about folks that are basically, you know, getting getting in and doing the work, you know, and, and really doing it in a way that um, sounds like effective, you know, responsive to the needs. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on what is the missed opportunity when services don't include work specific to, you know, under the umbrella of domestic violence, when when we don't do work around folks that use violence, what's the missed opportunity there in your opinion? Well, for, for me, it's very obvious. The missed opportunity is that we will never solve this problem mm -hmm. if we don't work with people who use violence. We can continue. And for, of course, we need to support survivors, adult and child survivors, mm -hmm. and there's always needs around that. That's absolutely essential. But if we don't go back and work with people who use violence, 
we will never solve the problem. That's Even right. if we, if our paradigm has been, and I do believe, like for instance, Jill Davis talks about the paradigm that it's always about separation, right? Uh, survivors need to leave their abuser, and that will solve the problem. Well, you know, you know, you know that's not true because this yeah. guy will go to another relationship mm -hmm. and then another relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, so finally, if we don't work with them, and the other thing, Wendy, and you know this very well, this is what many, many survivors want. That's right. right? We, we have been hearing for, what, 50 years, mm -hmm. survivors saying, please work with him, please support him. Uh, mm -hmm. This is what we need, even if they don't want to be together. When we started, the, started with the fathering after violence work, one of the things that we did was uh, focus groups with women of color about what mm -hmm. they wanted from their ex-partners and almost all of them i think except one wanted the the father of their children to be involved in their children's life if it could be done safely yeah. right so yeah so and i i think it's so interesting because i i will say that in this field sometimes i feel that we listen selectively mm. uh, <laughs> we we talked about being survivor-centered, and, and we are, by and large. But if a survivor says something that we don't like... That's right. <laughs> what we say is like, oh, she's not ready, or yeah, she doesn't yeah, yeah, get yeah, it, yeah. or we need yeah, to yeah, educate yeah. her about the dynamics of domestic violence. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if we really, really listen to all survivors, and especially BIPOC survivors, mm. we I mean, they don't want the police involved. Uh, there was a, a recent survey from uh, the National Hotline And this wasn't only about uh, uh, survivors of color, where uh, I, uh, I'm, I don't know the sex numbers, but it was close to 92% of survivors said that they were concerned about calling the police. Of course. 92%, almost all, okay? Mm -hmm. and, the, and these were the ones that hadn't called the police before. The ones that had called the police, two-thirds said that they probably wouldn't do it again. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, where are the crossroads in which, as a movement, we need to realize this is part of the work. Mm -hmm. Battering intervention is part of the advocacy work to end violence against uh, women and people of all genders. Mm -hmm. And I have to say the other challenge that we still have is that there's virtually no funding for this work. Wow virtually no funding. This is something that's starting to change very, very slowly. At the federal level, the Office on Violence Against Women has started to give a little bit of money uh, to a project that we're doing together with the Center for Justice Innovation and have been doing for some years. And then some states are starting to allocate money for this work. But by and large, this work has been done without any funding through the years. That's so sad, you know, and it's, and it's definitely a gap, you know, where it's, it's interesting to me because I think for us being in the field for so long, it's like we see the connection, right? So it's like, it's almost like when people don't see it that way, it's like, uh-huh, that's so interesting, you know, because it is, it's, it's almost like the missing piece to the puzzle sometimes. And Juan Carlos, staying on this vein of working with people that use violence or organizations that are thinking perhaps about Exploring some of that, how can you define, in a very simple way, accountability when working with the person that, that uses violence? And kind of like the second part to that question is, is accountability possible without shaming the person mm. that uses violence? Yeah, 
What, what a great question or questions, Wendy. So accountability, as you know, traditionally or often is equated with punishment. Even in the general public, like when they say a certain person is being held accountable, it sometimes means that they went to jail or something. And for me, I mean, obviously some people do need to go to jail, but that's not accountability for me. That's that's punishment. Mm -hmm. And in some cases that, that might be needed. But by and large, for me, accountability has two key elements. Yes, consequences. Of course, people need to have both legal and what we could call natural consequences for their behavior. For instance, that their children don't want to see them. That's a natural consequence uh, of their behavior, right? Mm -hmm. But the other side of accountability that's as important for me is support for change. And if someone ends up in jail, there will not be support for change. There is the opposite, in mm -hmm. fact. There's support for getting worse in mm -hmm. terms of their abuse. And, and we know that, right? That that's not the solution. So that's why we need different pathways and avenues, as we say, in futures to accountability. It's not that's only right. bothering intervention programs. That's one of the mm -hmm. elements. But for instance, right now, people are starting to plan and start the helplines for people who use violence, that which surprisingly has have not existed in the U.S. ever, right. uh, and they do exist in other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, that's another avenue of accountability. Fatherhood programs, therapy that is informed uh, by uh, domestic violence and so on. So there's not only one way to get there, but I think however we get there, we need to have those elements, both yeah. the consequences and the support for change. And then the second question is an interesting one. People sometimes say that we should work with people without violence, without judging them. And I always uh, question that because I think maybe maybe the Dalai Lama can be non-judgmental, but I think most of us are not at that level. And it's okay to judge. We judge all the time. But shaming is a difference. I prefer to focus on how do we work with folks trying to avoid as much as possible shaming them. I would say that some of it is out of our control because people naturally feel shame sometimes for things that they have done. But I think that if we don't add to add to that, and mm -hmm. for me, the the essential difference that I think Brené Brown and others make between shame and guilt is really important. Shame, she says, is feeling bad about yourself, who you are. And that's why when we dehumanize people who use violence and we see them as mm -hmm. monsters, that's shameful, right? Mm -hmm. Like you are a bad person. But guilt is about feeling bad about things that you have done. And that, wow. that means, you know, we all have done things mm -hmm. that we regret, right? Uh, but you still are potentially a good person and, and, and parts of you are good. I mean, I, I, I actually believe it. We are in the essence all good, the, how we are born, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so if we concentrate more in the behaviors rather than the person, that's why people sometimes say, well, the language doesn't matter, but something as simple as not calling someone a batter, I know. but like a person who has used violence. With the, that doesn't justify the behavior, that doesn't sugarcoat it, but it does separate the essence of the person with what they have done. And I, I feel it might seem like a simple thing, but when you work that way with people, they feel it. 
they feel the difference, of right? Of course, of course. And, and I think I have m mentioned before that there's studies that show that when people are in a place of shame, they will not change. That mm -hmm. is not conducive to change at all. Mm -hmm. So we have to move away from that shame. We have to believe that people can change. Uh, and I think uh, for me, that's, that's a, a key element of the work. Yeah, I love this so much, Juan Carlos. You know, I'm thinking about the, the fathers, right? So we know obviously not everyone who uses violence is, um, identifies as a man or male, but I'm thinking about your work at that intersection of fatherhood and, and folks that use the violence, you know, and I've heard you talk about this before. It's almost like if you can, and I don't want to, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say it as eloquently as you do, but I guess, you know, I'm, I'm wanting for you to share with our audience, what are some ways that you could work with fathers, and I've heard you say this before, when you connect them to their children, right? And the yes. impact and talk about that, there is an opportunity there. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think anyone who works with, with fathers who use intimate partner violence knows that it's much easier for them to develop empathy toward their children than towards their partner for, for better or for worse. Mm. So that creates an important opportunity. I, in this culture, fortunately, we do have um, a value that being a good parent, a good mother, a good father is important. So I think using that value and mm -hmm. the, the real love that, that fathers have for their children, even if they're having abusive, if that can be a very important point of entry. So for them to realize that if they are violent with their partner, they are also damaging their children can be a very, very important realization. For us, it's like, well, that's obvious. We all yeah, know yeah, yeah. that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but for many folks who use violence, and in truth, many survivors also try to minimize or deny the impact on children for whatever reason, right? How many times have we heard, well, they were in the other room, they were sleeping, they were at school. But of course, studies show that children are mm -hmm. greatly affected, even if they are not physically uh, at the moment where, where the, the violence happened. They can see the aftermath, they can feel the tension and so on. So I think the first step is to help fathers realize the impact that their behavior is having on their children. And for many of them, that's the beginning point and the motivator. And even before that, one of the things that I like to do it's based a little bit on, on uh, motivational, motivational interviewing. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, start by asking them, what do you love about being a father? Can you imagine? I mean, if someone yeah. goes to a program, usually it's like, you know, how many times have you hit your wife or whatever, right? Yeah. But if you ask them, what do you love about being a father? Mm -hmm. What are your dreams about your children? What are they, their dreams and their goals? How are you supporting that? And what is getting on the way? Right. So, again, I think there's so many interesting ways in which we can tap into that. For no sure. matter what you do. I mean, we used to love this in supervised visitation programs, this, which is another important avenue of accountability defined mm -hmm. as, as before. Right. Including support for change. So I think that often I, I, I with my work with people who use violence, when I started asking those questions, I could see that the, the, their demeanor completely changed and they started opening. Even in focus groups uh, for, for fathers who use violence, I would start, the icebreaker would be, 
like, what do you love about being a father? And that already set a different kind of、mm -hmm. uh, feeling. Does、yeah. that make sense? Absolutely. And then, and then from there, you can help them. Develop. So, what are the important values for you? For instance, working cross-culturally, what are the values from your culture about being a good father? What are your personal values? And once they start sharing those things, then you can hold them accountable、mm -hmm. to those values that they generate themselves, not the ones that we that we consider important, but the ones that they consider important. Yeah, yeah,、right? I love that so much, and you know, it resonates so much with me because in my years of doing this work. I, I, you know, I have the echo of so many survivors saying, like, you know, we want, and you said mentioned this earlier, we want the, the violence, the harm to stop, but we still want to be with this person, you know,、right. and so it's like really seeing it from a holistic point of view, where it's like, yeah, this person is a human, you know, and we say this, you know. Again, when we're working with survivors, that survivor is not only the domestic violence that has occurred to them, and in、right. the same token, the person that uses violence is not the only. That's not the only thing about them. So, I, I love everything you know, all the gems that you're sharing because it really helps us, you know, think about it from a from a very、um, effective angle, different angle, and also humanizes. I think the other piece to this. About humanizing is、um, it connects us from the outside looking in to the notion that people could change, you know. And, and a lot of people, you know, it's like you've done it once, you're gonna do it. But I'm like, you know, if we can't, if we cannot subscribe to the notion of people changing, then we're in trouble, right? And is it easy? Absolutely not. But when I hear you talk about this and 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 doing the work in a very effective and relational way,、um, it gives me hope.、Mm. You know, it gives me yeah. I'm glad to hear that,、yeah. and, and that's a really interesting point, Wendy, because that's another paradigm that I think、uh, is pretty stubborn in our field. That that people who use violence、uh, will not change, and that's actually not true.、Uh, well,、mm -hmm. it's not true for everyone.、Mm -hmm. Some, some. In fact, I believe everybody changes. Some people get worse. Some people get better. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.、Uh, And、uh, when when I'm asked that, I don't think that's the right question. I, I that's like the number one question I get. Really? People use will they change? And I think the question is, how can we help them to choose to change? Or, or the question is like,、uh, yeah, can they change? And I say, yeah, everybody can change, and everybody、mm -hmm. changes all the time. But it's part of our work to to help them be engaged、uh, in that change. And 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 research shows that、uh, that actually. Battering intervention programs and the the research is makes them very very complex. So we won't get into the whole thing here. But、uh, many studies show that 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 folks who go to programs、uh, and are engaged in a significant way do change. And it, it's interesting. A, a recent one was looking at the elements.、Uh, like they interviewed folks who use violence and like. What was important to you, and you mentioned the relational part of the accountability, which is one of the aspects, right? The systemic one, but、mm -hmm. there's the relational one. And、uh, people said, you know, the fact that they treated me like a human being in the group, like the facilitator didn't put himself or herself in a pe pedestal, where like, okay, I'm better than you, because that's another dynamic, right?、Mm -hmm. Like, where the good ones, they are the bad ones. That's right.、Uh, and also that they felt. 
both supported and challenged by other group members. You mentioned something my father would do. You remember that Scott, uh, mm -hmm. at some point, the moment in, who, in which he started to change was when a, another group member challenged him uh, mm -hmm. on his behavior, right? Yeah. And that can be so effective. So again, there's so much to say, mm -hmm. but but in, in some way, it's it's how we do the work. If the work is done in a relational, humane way, and then you can challenge people more. Mm -hmm. Of right? course. I mean, if, if I, I remember when I was doing the work directly, I sat down with a person and said, you know, I care about you and I don't want you to end up in jail or I don't want you to end up with a restraining order that you cannot see your kids again. I am here to help you not do that. I love and, that so much. I love that. Yeah. Well, it's so different than saying, yeah. hey, don't do that. Right? Knock it off. Yeah, right? of course. Of course. And, you go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I was going to say, and you cannot <laughs> fake that. No. Right? People can take no. But, you know, I deeply care about folks that I work with, everyone. Uh, so uh, I think that's that's an essential part of the work, I think. I love that so much. And it's like, it's a lesson for us all, right? Like people are, you know, we're, we're talking about people first, but people are people first and foremost, right? And it's almost like the ability to be able to connect with them is going to give you that in to be able to explore other ways. But I, I just love the way You just described that. And, and I think, you know, call me a sap, a hippie, whatever. But it's like, it connects me to love, right? Oh, yeah. You know, um, and we don't use the word love as much as we would want to in the field. But at the end of the day, it is. It's about loving one another and wanting the best for one another. And I think the way you described it is just so beautiful. Um Thank you for that. Juan Carlos, as we're winding down, I have a couple more questions. One being, what would be your your advice, suggestions, gems, nuggets, gold nuggets to organizations that have not done this work and are mm. thinking about it? Mm. What would you say are maybe one or two things that they should start thinking about or acting on? Okay, this might surprise you, but I okay. will say the first thing for organizations that want to work with folks who use violence is to look in the mirror, hmm. is to start looking at their own issues and their own biases and, and what could get on the way of that connection that we were talking about that. You've seen me sometimes, I not sometimes, I often in trainings start by doing an exercise where I ask the audience to uh, complete the sentence, batters are. Mm -hmm. And I usually don't use that language, but I use it here because it's effective. And then, you know, people will say whatever, they are monsters, they are, uh, mm -hmm. but, you know, sometimes there are more positive things. I think we need a balance between concerns that, of course, batters are, for instance, manipulating, cruel. Yes, uh, yeah, true. And this is not a, 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 it's a, this is a both and, not an or. Uh, and they are humans, they are parents, they grew up with trauma uh, and so on. So uh, our friends at, at Men Stopping uh, Violence in Atlanta call this, uh, I think, uh, the, we are the work, they call it. And this is very interesting. They ask, if you're going to be a facilitator in that program, you have to go through the program as a participant first. And you have to look at your own stuff. 
You might not be like an abuser, quote unquote, but you know, we all have done things that we Mm -hmm. all can improve, right? Mm -hmm. So that would be my first step to look in the mirror. uh, And, you know, there's so many things that you can do. I mean, people certainly can go to, there's all kinds of training that you can get online from the different models from Duluth, from Emerge, uh, etc. But I think one thing, Wendy, that's still uh, missing, in addition to this looking in the mirror, is to have uh, a not only culturally relevant, but I will just say an anti-racist lens that's to right. this work. Uh, and there are so few programs that that do this. I mean, I can count them with one hand, actually. Mm-hmm. And there's there's thousands of programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you have to ask the questions about when I do this work, the work that the, the way I want to do it, who is benefiting from it? Who is being affected by it? Like the same way that we should do it with everything, right? Like how to be an anti-racist. Every, there's no neutral policies. That's right. Right? There's no neutral practices. So when we practice in this way, are we benefiting only white families? Are we damaging people of color? And what are we going to do about it? That's so right. This might seem strange because these are not technical issues about working with people who use violence, but I think they are essential points of departure to do the work well. And then from there, Whatever, you can take any kind of training. Yeah, yeah. There is a, um, uh, I mentioned before our collaboration with the Center for uh, Justice Innovation that used to be Center for Court Innovation. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, uh, we have put together with their, they have led this, but we also participated in a clearinghouse. Uh, and there's tons of resources there. And I'll, I'll give the, the website is uh, innovativejustice.org innovativejustice.org slash abusive partner resources or look up uh, Center for Court Innovation or for Center for Justice Innovation Abusive Partner Resources. If you Google that, uh, it will show up. And there's a lot of good resources there. Yeah, thank you. We probably, we might be able to add the link as well. And, you know, just to your point on anti I love looking in the mirror, right? Because it's like, yeah, you're right. The work has to start with us. And... The anti-racist suggestion is so important and it's always been so interesting to me. And I know you and I have talked about it because it's like, look who is in the system. Look who's being core mandated into these programs, right? And that doesn't mean that this population or this community does it more, right? We understand as a whole the problematic relationship for BIPOC communities in this country, right? So if you if you start from there, you then you start understanding 911 is not the only option. You right. start understanding how can I connect with Latino and black men if I don't at least acknowledge, right? That the way that they're seen or treated in this world is racist in many, you know, in many instances. So it's like totally. it's almost like you're you're you, the foundation is here, and if you want to build authentic relationship and, and and really help them view what they can change, then you have to start from there. I love that so much. Absolutely. I, yeah, I just want to add that this is one of maybe the most important point of frustration for me after 30-something years doing this work. You did say, well, we know that systems hurt people of color. I guess people intellectually know this, but Still, people are not, at least in in the field of battering intervention, 
so much more work has to be done with that, even even just understanding how, mm-hmm. how that happens. And one of the things that I often mention is that, as you mentioned, most of the participants in urban centers in the U.S. are people of color because they come from the criminal legal system. And most of the facilitators are, are white folks, yeah. which in and of itself might be problematic, but it could be worked out if they had a real, real good analysis of, of, of issues around race and poverty and so on. But by and large, folks do not or do not use it. So then actually, I think that potentially the intervention can be even detrimental because, you know, if I'm a man of color, go to this program run by white folks, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they, they basically are telling me what to do. It's like, sure, like one more thing that yeah. the mainstream system is telling me what to do, right? So uh, an interesting story that I want to share about this is that actually when I trained many, many years ago, they told me that when someone, when a person of color said, oh, you want to talk about oppression, I can tell you about my experience of oppression, that we should redirect them and tell them, no, we're talking here about oppression of women, not racial oppression or any, not literally, that's how I was trained. You can imagine that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, a person uh, that that directs and runs a program Right after, actually, not at the beginning of the pandemic, but after the uh, George Floyd's uh, murder, she didn't know what to do. And one of the participants said, well, what about if we share our stories of police brutality? And these were almost all, all men of color. And to her credit, she said, sure. And they spent the whole group talking about wow. uh, about stories, including the ones that took them to the program, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think she reported that after that, the dynamic of the group changed. Of course, right? yeah. yeah. And in some wow. way, you, uh, the, the missed opportunity here is that if someone understands oppression mm-hmm. as a man of color mm-hmm. or as a man of uh, a low-income man, then you can make the parallels of, of oppression of, of women, of children, and people of all genders, yeah. right? So yeah. that's another missed opportunity. Yeah, there. it's almost like duh, but it's so sad that it's not it's not common knowledge. And you know, without naming the state, you and I have observed groups. Yeah. And and I remember talking about this dynamic, and it's like, uh, are we really here? You know, because it's like it is a missed. We've seen it be a missed yeah. opportunity because it really it almost like plays out the power dynamic right in a different way in a different way you know yeah yeah it does that's why using coercive systems and methods to change coercion or to challenge coercion is not going to work Mm -hmm. right it's like it's like hitting a a child after they hit someone else don't hit and then you hit them right (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't work (laughs) oh my goodness you're absolutely right uh, I wish this this conversation would wouldn't end now, but our last question. Okay. Are there any resources that you're excited about? I know a couple that you're involved with, including the workbook that we would love to share with our audiences. But yeah, any resources, uh, supports that folks can find? Uh, absolutely. So yes, the, I'll put number one, our work there, which is uh, a few months ago, we published a workbook for fathers who use violence and want to change. And the workbook is very, it's very accessible and it's written directly speaking to the fathers and 
many people have like therapists and people have in, incorporated into groups and so on. So you can, uh, hopefully we can share that one mm -hmm. and you can go to our website too and, and get it there. It's, it's free. You just download it. It has beautiful illustrations about an artist that Wendy introduced me to from the <laughs> Dominican Republic. Uh, and so that's that's a, a good resource. Then I mentioned before the Clearinghouse that that the Center for Justice Innovation has been uh, curating with with our help, and hopefully we can share that too. One thing that I would like to share, because I imagine that a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are advocates and folks who work with survivors. And one thing that we often think is like, well, I work with survivors. I, I shouldn't have to, you know, why is this important for mm -hmm. me? And uh, I would recommend an article by Jill Davis from uh, Greater Hartford Legal Services. I'm sure you know her. Uh, uh, it's called... Uh, Uh, survivor Center Advocacy Beyond Living. It's a, a recent one. And she actually makes a really good case of why advocates, you might not work directly with people who use violence, but why advocates have to ad adopt this framework of humanizing people who use violence because otherwise you are doing a disservice to those survivors that you were mentioning before, Wendy, uh -huh. that they came as like, that they see their partner as a human. If we don't do that too, We're doing a disservice. And if we send them messages like, oh, he will never change or mm -hmm. he will get worse mm -hmm. or like this, we're doing a disservice, right? That's right? It's true that some people will change, but you cannot just say that about everyone. Sure. It's just not true. So even if you're an advocate, I think there's, it's important that you, that you look at the mirror, as we said before, and look at your own biases, not only about people and in particular men who use violence and men of color who use violence, which is an additional oh, bias. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. another That's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I would recommend those resources. Yeah. I love that. And thank you so much. Hopefully we can include that in the show notes and links to those resources. Juan Carlos, I can't thank you enough. I've had this conversation with you before, but every time I have it, I learn something new from you. So thank you. Thank you so much. We're so lucky to have you in our team. And there's no doubt in my mind that this is going to be of utmost benefit to so many. So Thank you for your time. And maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a part two in Spanish or something. Absolutely. You never know. <laughs> Let's do it. Thank you so much, Wendy. And uh, always a pleasure to, to chat with you. And now I'd like to conclude with a beautiful poem by Ariana Brown. The poem is titled, For the Black Kids in My Eighth Grade Spanish Class. For Eddie T. Alexis Michelle. Island at the center of the room, dark utopia in the middle of middle school. When the girls I was friends with in sixth grade started bullying me in the eighth grade, I stopped talking to them. In retaliation, they pushed me in the halls, shoved my books out of my hands, and talked shit loud in class for everyone to hear. Worst of all, they made fun of my Spanish. So I drifted to sit with the black kids, and it was there in the classroom of Senora Quinones, the four desks in the middle of the room, I could unveil my whole self without shame. For the group of people who helped me find my natural rhythm, who taught me to trust it, to be black and laugh with my whole body. For Alexis and Michelle, who laughed and showed every tooth, every time 
who dragged joy from their lungs and threw their happiness in the air. When they reached you, you couldn't help but catch on and make the happy sounds too. For T, who chuckled at my jokes, wrote the lyrics to Roses by Kanye West in my notebooks so I would fall in love with hip-hop too. And for Eddie, the quiet brother taking notes in the back, who once shouted, where the hell is my pinche cuaderno? So loud, all of us black kids shouted, then laughed till tears poured out like music notes. And there, we were filling the space with the sound of us. Again, the descendants of slaves have always been the kindest to me. Eddie and I were the only ones good at Spanish. The others were good at being free. Blackness, the gift my father gave me, is the most human thing I have ever been blessed to be. Bond that cannot be broken should we choose it over supremacy. I've never needed a country to love me, just black people. I have never needed heaven, just black people. Eddie Alexis Michelle T, you gave me permission to love being black. Who taught you to love the texture of your hair and the color of your skin, the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips? Who taught you to love yourself from the top of the head to the soles of your feet? Repeat, I'm repeating, I'm repeating. Mistake, mistake, mistake. Who taught you to love yourself from the top of your head to the soles of your feet? Who taught you to love your own kind, the race you belong to, so much so you only want to be around each other, to be what God gave you, beautiful, because we choose to be together because we're better that way. When I tell you no one in the world makes me laugh like black people, makes me love like black people, I mean, it's the first thing people notice about me. It's the first prayer I wake to and the longest song I am grateful to sing. Should I ever be shamed inward for wearing a dark cloud on my head? Should I ever think myself better for being a lighter color? Let me remember the dark utopia from whence I come. Should I ever forget that black people have demonstrated the greatest acts of humanity, of courage, that we're no one's second choice, that no matter where they put us on a map, we will find each other, create our own worlds, and they will be enough. Let us be enough. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pivot. Please be sure to check out show notes for any resources referenced during the podcast. You will also find discussion questions, which we hope will help you, our listener, continue dialogue around these very important topics. If you know of any work happening in your community that would add to the national discussion generated by this series, please email us a summary of the efforts and work taking place to the pivot at futures without violence.org. That email again is the pivot at futures without violence.org. We will be sure to get back to you. Last but certainly not least, we would like to express our deepest gratitude to Chance Taylor for all his support in editing all the episodes and to Sudubi Kuke for producing the series. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, your host, Wendy Mota.